Hi, everyone. Welcome back to MIT Is, the podcast. We are your hosts, Abi Moto and Gabe Owens. Last month, we discussed our experiences and how those have influenced our career paths and um, our different majors as well. And this week, we plan to talk about our return back to MIT, how classes are going for us, and on-campus life and off-campus life as well. Um, so right now, I am living on campus. Gabe is, you're still back in LA, right? No, I'm slightly off campus, but. Oh, that's true. We're going to just talk a little bit more about how that has been for us. And, you know, a lot has been going on this year in general. So um, there's definitely a whole lot to talk about um, there too. So let's just start off with a check-in. Gabe, how are you doing? What's going on with you? Um, I have a lot of work that I haven't started on. Um, this semester, I've decided to take a lot more non-technical classes, um, which for me are, are aerospace classes. Um, I am taking um, a few classes in, or I'm taking a class in course 11, which is uh, urban studies and planning. Um, and then a class in, a history class that's, um, that's fairly rigorous. And, uh, both of those classes require a lot more reading than I'm used to. Um, I think engineers in general are like not not great at reading, uh, and I'm no different. Uh, I used to be really good at reading. I don't know what happened, but um, I'm just I just read very slowly now, uh, and I get assigned like 50, 60, 70, 100 pages of reading sometimes, and it's super daunting. But uh, but it's been very enlightening that but I do have to do that later yeah um and it's the same thing um I think a lot of people think or you would think that because we're in quarantine and everything is virtual the workload would go down if anything I feel like it's going up and it's hard as hell to keep up with everything <laughs> yeah. yeah there's just generally been a a, a trend of classes uh, and I'm not sure if this is external to MIT, I'm sure it is, but of classes not adapting to new forms of pedagogy. So they've just mm -hmm. taken the online model and then done the exact same thing they did before, yeah. um, which is inappropriate to say the least. And mm -hmm. it ranges from inappropriate to like kind of disgusting. But <laughs> um, so, for example, one of my classes that I, I won't mention the name of, but I will be repeat, referring to repeatedly throughout this, uh, has decided that instead of the normal 50-minute lectures that would exist on campus um, to, to just sort of like pick a random length of lecture, depending on how long the professor decides to speak for. So there are some lectures that are like an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah. They would not be allowed to happen on campus. Why is this any different? Why do you why do you feel entitled to 20 more minutes of my time? Yeah. But I digress. Yeah. But I, I, I do think we should talk a little bit more about that and just about if we we're going to say maybe equity on campus or um, how we navigate it and how resources are being made available to us in this, you know, very disruptive time. I think it's an important thing to talk about. Um, I have already missed like two P sets on a technical in a technical class, and it's not just because like the work is hard. You know, the work is always hard at MIT, 
But, you know, the structures around how you get it done is very important, especially collaborating with other people, um, you know, going to office hours, receiving in-person help. That's critical to your experience at MIT. And I would say that a major pitfall of this whole quarantine or about life in COVID is that MIT hasn't really figured out how to help students that way. And if any, if, if, if there was already lacking support, I feel like it's even worse right now um, in many ways. Yeah, I, we, we got iPads um, if you asked for one, um, which is nice. Um, so I've been able to do some of my work through here. But, but this doesn't address like any of the structural issues I have or any students might have with, with class. Um, uh, but I guess like the, the, the technology sometimes um, is there in support. So I, I have appreciated that so far. And it's, it's, you really realize how, how much around in-person, you know, classes and such you really need. Like going to a class, needing help 10 minutes after the class is over, you can just go up to the professor and ask a very quick question. And when those small things are sort of taken away or they're harder to do over Zoom, um, just everything is harder. Everything is really hard. Um, and I think that's something that I, I wish that the MIT administration or teaching staff or whatever really figured out how to get around. Yeah, and so much of MIT is, is external to classes. Um, like classes realistically take up um, a couple hours of the day, but the rest of the time you're spent uh, on campus doing other things, um, going to eat, all these other things. But the common thread of all of those other things is that you have other MIT students to interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, you have other people to converse with or complain about classes with, uh, other people to work on P-sets with or to collaborate on projects with. And all of those things, uh, you lose all of those things when, when you don't have uh, in-person classes mm-hmm. or in-person session. Uh, and it's necessary at some point to 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 social distance but but there should also be a modification of expectation mm. I no longer have like a I, I live with with uh, three other MIT students um, and it's been wonderful to interact with them but I don't take all of my classes with them and so when I'm confused about questions three on the 1630 piece who am I gonna ask mm-hmm. um, I have to go into some other, like, secondary, external means of communication and ask a group chat that may or may not respond to me at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and another, you know, difference, I guess, in our experiences is, you know, where when I'm on campus and then you're not on campus. So um, how has off-campus life been like for you? Has it been good, bad, and any way? Is it different than what you expected in any way? Yeah, um, I honestly did not spend very much time off of campus when I, like in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really familiar with East Cambridge, which is the area immediately surrounding MIT. I uh, wasn't super familiar with Boston. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't really like walk around that much. I've done a lot more of that and. and interacted with the environment outside of MIT, which has been wonderful. Um, 
but it's been much harder to do classwork. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much of that is because I'm off campus and not in the environment that I've been accustomed to producing um, with, but it, it has been harder to, to do classes. Yeah. How about you? How is, how is on campus? So I will say it's a lot better than what I thought it would be. <laughs> like I was sort of nervous about how strict MIT was going to be and the environment that would create. Um, they ended up being a lot more lenient than I expected. So if anything, the greatest obligation that we have is getting tested twice a week and filling out a daily attestation of like our, whether we have any symptoms. And, you know, that's not too much to ask for. Um, and in many ways, like the pod system, I think, was really successful because at the end of the day, like I have four close friends that I can interact with without a lot of regulation. So I have found that to be really good. And like, we have found ways to leave campus. Like we went kayaking, um, like we go out and we, like we had brunch yesterday and at least we can navigate social settings without like too much concern. That's great. The food here is horrendous. The food is terrible. I can't even explain how bad it is. And the fact that we had to get a meal plan, like we have no choice. We can't cook. Um, so for like the first week here, I was ordering food like every day or just not eating. Like it was it was really bad like that. So like appreciably worse than what it was before. Way worse. Way worse. Which, which to be clear, is like already not great. <laughs> MIT is a world-class institution for learning <laughs> STEM, but it is not not even close to uh, fun to eat there Yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah, so I think what they did, they were like, they shut down kitchens on campus, so they would have to cook and transport it from, like, another dorm to, like, different dorms. So it was just awful, and, like... Another downfall is that you have to, for breakfast and um, lunch on weekdays, you have to walk to the student center to get food. So you could you could end up walking almost a mile to go get, like, breakfast and lunch, <laughs> which is, it's, and I don't want to complain about it too much because, I mean, we are in a pandemic, but at the same time, when you have to pay for it, I think you have a right to say that this is not working. Um and don't even get me started with the dietary restrictions and being vegetarian, but yeah, that has been a whole nother thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have not had that issue thus far. <laughs> um, well, I, I have had other issues. Like, I, uh, this is mostly my fault, but I spent like a lot of time this summer wondering whether or not I was going to come back. Uh, so I actually missed the deadline for on-campus mm-hmm. return. So I wasn't even eligible for that. Um, but this also means that I took a long time to ask for my refund, uh, mm-hmm. and so I still haven't received it a month into a month into school, mm-hmm. which means I've been relying on money I had before, which which has now run out, and then mm-hmm. my my roommate supplementing with food. Um, but but that it's been fine. I, I feel like a adult. 
um, <laughs> which, I, which I'm sure is a foreign experience vis-a-vis <laughs> food. So are you, is that going to be settled soon? Like, are you doing okay? I hope so. I, yeah, I asked for my refund. Um, mostly I'm just concerned about rent, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I now have to deal with because it's not automatically subtracted from my scholarship. I have to get it yeah. from MIT and then hand it off to a landlord. Yeah, so to our listeners, um, what Gabe is talking about is a financial aid refund um, that a lot of us receive. And this um, semester specifically, we got a COVID-19 grant, additional $5,000 added onto that. Um, So a lot of people have been using that uh, for off-campus housing and to just sustain themselves overall. So that's really important. And I hope you get it. I hope you get it really soon Um, because, yeah, we're like a month in already. Right. Um, Yeah. So I guess to speak more broadly about financial aid, um, my my parents uh, make less in one year than MIT costs for that same amount of time. So Mm -hmm. uh, generally, this means that MIT acknowledges that my parents can't pay for this, and thus, like the like their contribution to MIT, uh, they've calculated to be zero. My contribution is also usually zero, except this year uh, I had to file, so I filed taxes in 2018, which means that this year those taxes are relevant. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why that's how that works, Yeah. but uh, I had an internship in 2018 that paid me decently, so uh, my student contribution this year is purportedly $650. Mm-hmm. But compared to the $29,000 that it costs this semester, it's, that's nothing. And MIT uh, gives you a scholarship um, based on based solely on what they acknowledge that you can pay for. And then on top of that, um, as was mentioned, the, we got uh, a COVID-era grant, mm-hmm. um, which is on top of that. A lot of students, or I don't know about a lot of students, but some students uh, have scholarships that are greater than the amount that MIT has to pay because they also give you money for for like housing and mm-hmm. food. So you get a refund instead of having to pay. Yeah. So that that's um I will say that is something kind of unique to MIT. A lot of other schools, when you max out your financial aid, you they just sort of absorb it. Um, so I think that has been helpful for me personally um, at MIT. And I think a lot of students, um, this is why when COVID-19 sort of swept through our country, um, the financial aid was a huge thing that a lot of students spoke up about because this COVID grant that we're talking to, we're talking about, I mean, um, it was not offered to everyone at first. It was mostly off. It was only offered to people who owed money at first. And that was a huge um, thing that a lot of people thought was unfair because, if anything, COVID is affecting lower-income students um, to a greater amount. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a crazy time here at MIT, especially. Um, so, I think we're still getting through it, honestly. Yeah, and and also like implicitly because of that, the way that the way that it worked was that the students with the families with the high like higher incomes got mm-hmm. this got the grant instead of logically what. Uh, like the lower income students because yeah. it's need blind so we don't we don't get accepted based on on how much money your family can provide mm-hmm. and yeah I'm glad that I got that got fixed though so. yeah 
So let's talk a little bit about um, co-curricular or extracurricular activities you've been doing. Um, it's been weird, at least for me, because, you know, it's virtual, of course, but um, I've still been trying to, like, keep up with other things at MIT. Um, so I'll go first. Um, I'm involved in the pre-law society, which we just made. And last week we had our very first, um, like, event, and it was, like, a mixer with some alumni. And I think for me personally, it it taught me the strength of the alumni network, if anything, because, you know, I you would when you're pre-law at MIT, you feel like there's no one here and there's not a lot of support. And then the alumni come back who went to law school and they're just ready to help. Like they're like, if you need a job, let me know, which I do need a job. Um, and <laughs> like it, it, it was really, really great. And, you know, to anyone listening, if you eventually come to MIT, I would really encourage you to try to find those alumni. They're out there and you just may never know. So that was really good for me. And even though the mixer was virtual and it was, you know, not as great, I feel like that was definitely a plus for me in the past few weeks. So how about you? Have you been involved in anything? Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I would say that for most MIT students, for the vast majority, um, uh, when we when we were in high school um, or whatever pre-MIT education you have, um, you go hard yeah. uh, because you're trying to get here. And that often means treating your mental health or other forms of health secondarily because the priority is to produce and to stack things on your resume. I don't feel that that is necessary anymore, and I'm glad that I got there because the first few semesters I was here, I was also on that. Like, I was trying to, like, rack up as many things as I could on my resume. I was doing a whole bunch of clubs Mm -hmm. uh, that that did sound interesting, but um, you also have to keep in mind that all of these things require time and energy and effort. So, like, I was doing, I was dancing, I was on Rocket Team, which is a like a project-based organization or group on campus where you build rockets that compete in competitions. I was in the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. I was um, in a fraternity. And since then, I've sort of, like, distanced myself from all of those because I realized that I don't need to do all of those for someone else's approval, um, and I don't necessarily want to participate in all of those things simultaneously. So it's yeah. been it's been a very, very calm time for me. It's been very reflective. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of, a lot of personal growth, a lot of taking care of myself, um, and and I think I have been involved in I've been organically involved in groups that I'm that I feel like connected to. Mm. So, for example, um, I have a. I when I when I lived on campus, I was in. I bounced around a lot, but I ended up in East Campus, which uh, and and specifically on a floor in East Campus that I particularly connected with, and I still talk to those people regularly. Um, we have a Discord and everything that we talk on, and I feel that that's that's been wonderful and that's been very organic and it mm-hmm. it's. It's been part of my social life in a way that doesn't feel like it's a burden or something else that I need to produce for. 
Um, and that that's that's great, I think. Yeah. That it's 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 remember that it's it's always okay to not have to you don't have to produce you don't have to do all these things and and it's it's great to to do these things if you feel that that's something you're capable of or something you can do but also you don't you don't have to yeah take care of yourself and it was really the same thing for me so you know I talked about the pre-law society just now but getting to the pre-law society required entering and leaving a lot of other things. So I was also involved in the National Society of Black Engineers. I was you know, involved in our Black Students Union. I was just, you know, in things left and right. And I, there was just a point where they just started to overwhelm me. And it wasn't like a good sort of overwhelmed where you want to do the work or you're, you know, you're stressed to, you know, do more work. It was just, you know, a point where I just wasn't happy Um I a lot of things were on my resume that I didn't legitimately enjoy and you know it it really crumbled my academic performance for an entire semester and um sort of took away from my time at MIT and you know required me to sort of leave those things but start putting my energy into activities that I legitimately cared about and that's where the pre-law society came from um because there was nothing like that before. And I was like, okay, this is something I actually want to create. And, you know, to our listeners, you know, no matter what college you go to, or if you already are in college right now, um, I would encourage you to really find that niche that you really care about and put your energy into that because that won't feel like work. Yeah. Like even if you're a full adult and you feel that you're doing all of these things, Remember that you don't have to do that extra yoga class. You can just stay home and take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Relatedly, yoga is a mindset, not a class. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, next up, um, you know, this, we're recording this you know, near the end of September. There's been a lot going on in the world, um, you know, the... The decision on Breonna Taylor came out just last week, and, you know, it was overwhelming disappointment, I would say, about how it actually turned out. Um, police officer only indicted for, what was it, wanton endangerment, for missing. <laughs> um, and in my own communities, I definitely sensed just a depression, just a sadness, a tiredness in you know, the fact that we just went through an entire summer with so much going on and, you know, we come to this and, you know, people are at least hoping for justice to be served here and that not happening either. Um, And I feel like, you know, in the past week, there's been a lot going on at MIT. Um, It's not even just with the Breonna Taylor decision. We've had a lot going on in the MIT community. Um, We had a recent death. Um, within the community that I know some people who uh, knew who this person was. So that was a lot. Um, We recently had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and also with the Breonna Taylor decision. So there's definitely been a heaviness in the community. There's been a lot of emotions and um, just a lot of frustration overall. How has that affected you, Gabe, or any communities that you're in? Um, so uh, the person who died, um, 
I'll say his name, Sergio Dominguez. Um, he is, I didn't personally know him, but um, he was a, a, a very important member of the Latino community for a lot of people, or the Latin, Latin community um, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Uh, and that's a community that I am a part of. Um, and it's, it, it, it was, it's always a really heavy thing, um, for, for people to, to be lost in this way. Um, and it, it, it requires a lot of, a lot of strength for people to continue taking classes at yeah. the end of the day and, and trying to graduate. Um, for a lot of people, uh, I think that that I actually don't know because I'm not on campus. But do you know what the mental health programs look like right now? Um, so nothing in person. Everything is virtual. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, beforehand, before the the whole COVID thing happened um, and the pandemic that has restructured how students have interacted with their teachers and with campus. Uh, there was some on-campus therapists. Um, unfortunately, and I'm going to be very honest here, they were insufficient, uh, both in, in amount and volume that they were able to talk to students. This is something that I hope MIT starts dealing with uh, more in the future. We really need more therapists on campus or more therapists ther P options. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a sort of a running joke among academia that uh, you know puppies don't solve everything mm -hmm. because uh, organizations love throwing like dogs at you for occasional like pseudotherapy. But um, we we definitely need more more of that on campus um, because that that is sort of the only way. That is one of the only ways for an institution to deal with these kinds of things. Yeah. Because death is very inevitable, and when you uh, apply this much pressure to a community, sometimes this happens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I hope, I hope that's, that's a structural change that comes about this whole thing. Uh, and in general, I think pretty much everyone's going to need therapy after this is done. Mm. There is way too much happening. I'm sorry that I don't have my like very collected words for this this part, but it's this is this is difficult to to communicate about. It's difficult to rationalize with, mm. um, and I and I, I I don't think anyone really knows how to deal with death. Yeah. Or the loss of of people in in a community. Yeah. Whether that be like a classmate or a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. And also the the challenges of not being physically present um, with other people who are grieving, I think is challenging us in very unique ways. And it sort of contributes to the faltering, I would say, psychological fitness of our community. Like, we, you know, people say mental health, but it's like it's like day by day. We're just sort of being drawn down and, you know, brought back. And it's 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 really hard to make it out of this while still concerned about your classes, your employment, your X, Y, and Z. Um, and I would say that 
in my own communities, there's also been a lot of, like, frustration is an understatement at this point. Like, it's been a lot of anger of just, you know, like, I saw a tweet of, like, how do you have a wrongful death lawsuit and then no one's held responsible for the death? You know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense at all? Um, How do you pay out $12 million to a family, mm-hmm. which which is admission of guilt at some point, mm-hmm. and then not admit a guilty person? And the fact that all of this just looks like a distraction. You know, don't don't say that $12 million is enough. It, it's not enough. It, it's You're just sort of distracting from the liability here that, you know, someone killed someone by going to the wrong house. Like, it's not... It's not something that you can just sort of get around in any way, shape, or form. Like as a black woman, it's it's sort of it's it's really disheartening to just sort of think that like you know you can't say that oh this person was doing this they were doing this you know they shouldn't have been the person was in their house just sleeping right and I don't know you don't there's no way to just sort of get around the feeling of like you know what's going to happen to me next or what's going to happen to my family next you can't get around that. And I think that's the reason why mentally this time is so challenging because there's no way to escape what's happening. You, it's hard not to see yourself in the experiences of other people. Thank you for talking about that with me, Gabe. Um, I think it's really important to just sort of process what's been going on because it's been a lot. Um, but we've been taking some interesting classes um, from mm-hmm. what I've some, heard. Some, some relevant classes, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, I can sort of go first of talking about um, this really cool class that I've been taking. It's called Race, Crime, and Citizenship. It's a history class. And we start off with the beginning of slavery. So if you've, you probably have heard about the 1619 Project by the New York Times, this um, huge um series of yeah it's like series of papers that have been talking about the origins of slavery starting with the revolutionary period um and in this class that's where we started and um we started off with talking about how slavery actually played a factor in the american revolution which is something you will never hear (laughs) in public or just in any grade school you won't hear that at all um And another interesting thing that we've been talking about is how America has influenced other societies around the world. So particularly Nazi Germany was heavily influenced by, um, like, American politics and, you know, our structures in place. So it's been, like, a really eye-opening class uh, and just sort of being able to see how America fits into a lot of places that we are not really comfortable seeing America in. Like, we, no one wants to hear that America influenced Nazi Germany. No one wants to hear that, um, you know, the Revolutionary War was fought in part to preserve the institution of slavery. No one wants to hear that. And um, I think this class itself has just been um, important for those reasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a class that, that really shouldn't be about the United States, but is at some point. Uh, it's called... Um, 21H173, it's Socialism in Latin America. And what you end up learning in this class, unfortunately, is that there have been a lot of worker-based revolutions and movements uh, in, in 
the geographic area underneath the United States that really should have happened without United States intervention. But the history of this entire, these entire two continents, I suppose, if you want to divide it into North and South or North and Latin America, however you want to make that distinction, there has been a lot of intervention politically, economically, and sometimes culturally and militarily in these countries uh, by the United States, often to preserve the economic patterns of this side of the hemisphere, which is production by these countries and exploitation of resources by the United States. Mm -hmm. And this is all rather tied into each other. The preservation of slavery in the United States was necessary for the preservation of slavery in Haiti, in Cuba, in Mexico, and all of these other countries where slaves were also brought by Brazil, also brought in uh, in mass and subjugated under the same sort of regimes as the United States. And once that that institution started to crumble, so did other institutions in other countries, only to give way to other new forms of slavery. And because as we know, slavery is not gone; it's not dead. Mm-hmm. It just looks like mass incarceration now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that uh, it brings me to another thing that we talked about in um, this same class, and we talked about where prisons started in the United States, and it was interesting because it was like the early colonists who sort of frowned upon how the British um, punished people, like they had corporal punishment, which um, you know early Americans thought was you know, sort of a hallmark of a monarchy, um, like, you know, those aggressive forms of punishment. So the idea was to sort of reform people or to rehabilitate people and um, make them go into a prison where you instill discipline and things like that. And that was supposed to be better than what the British did. And, you know, only in extreme cases did you ever go to corporal punishment. And it's so interesting because that system has evolved to what we have today, to people just being locked up, to people being used for their human labor, um, to people's labor being exploited, really, I should say. Um, And one thing that I found interesting about the class is that, you know, America in many ways has looked outwards and said, um, you know, criticized what other people have done, but, it's 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 interesting to see how we've sort of devolved into the system that we have today of having, you know, the highest amount of people incarcerated or in the system compared to any other country in the entire world in all of history. And yeah, this, this class has just done a really great job as just sort of exposing how America has played a factor in, you know, so many, you know, um, what should I say, like atrocities abroad and also has you know, its own system itself has sort of suffered as a result. Yeah, yeah, I want to say two things to that, I guess. The first is that uh, at the end of these four years, um, I will be graduating with an aerospace degree, but the most interesting classes and perhaps most important classes to my own career will not have been the aerospace classes, but will have been the other classes that I took as supplements 
um, the half classes, which are humanities, arts, and social sciences, mm-hmm. um, classes that, that give you other sort of theoretical frameworks to look at the world, um, to empower you to ask questions that, that you can even apply to like engineering or STEM fields. Um, those are the classes that I think are going to stick with me. Those readings and those skills are what I find most relevant to what I'm going to be doing in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, I think the, the carceral system in the United States extends way past um, the physical institutions that they've established, which are a ton. There are so many jails here. But also into the, the mindset that we have regarding justice mm-hmm. and regarding discipline and and at some point ethics in this country mm. unfortunately i think even like classes um with with sort of like the the sort of the type of punishment that we have the type of justice we have even in classes with regard to like cheating or or other violations um those are extensions of the carceral system mm. even even protests in their radical nature will still say like prosecute killer cops or mm. or you have to jail these people. Um, the carceral system exists definitely within us and it's it's part of our task as people and stewards of of the future to get past that, to start thinking outside of a system that only seeks to find what is right and thus isolate what is wrong and punish that so that it becomes correct. Yeah. That's not how this should work, and that's, that's where things like restorative justice and, and other forms of, of ethics come into play, and it's so important for us to each individually, and this is not to like put all of the responsibility onto the individual because that's what happens with a lot of things like the environment, for example. But but genuinely, like we all have to start rethinking these things because we've been taught that jails are how you get criminals off the streets. But like we have the cops on the streets, and some of them are criminals because they aren't getting like they they've, they've been allowed to do things that that we can all like or that well I guess that we agree um, is is ethically corrupt. Uh, this this is not a system that that has worked. It's not a system that isn't even meant to work. Um, and it's a system that exists within all of us that we need to start checking and then correcting. Yeah. And, um, you brought up a really, this is, that was a really amazing point. And you brought up something that uh, reminded me of something we learned in my other class, my mass incarceration class. (laughs) And we were talking about the issue of, it was like collateral, the term is like collateral punishment or collateral, just just like the collateral damage that comes with being in the system of you know, our criminal justice system and how that surpasses the punishment like to greater degrees. Like it could exclude you from public housing, from public assistance, from getting a job, like it, it, your, the community is affected from voting, like just these just egregious amount of, you know, consequences that sort of pile up and how these sort of things are never considered when you're in front of a judge. You know, a judge is talking about your sentence. The prosecutor is recommending a sentence. They're not, you know, they're they're not looking at 
how much this is impacting um, people and how it's impacting generations of people that come after you. And, you know, what you mentioned about the thinking is really important because it's like when we think about someone who, when we say, like, put this person in jail, I don't even think we understand the weight of what we say anymore. And it's like we are sort of numb to the concept of people going to prison, of what people look like who go to prison, that we're not even looking ahead at what that really means for us as a society um, and how that's really putting us behind, if anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in LA, where where um, immigration services are are the, like a big joke that that um, that students and children have like amongst themselves. Like they're like call INS or or call like ICE is a is a recurring theme for for like childish humor. Mm. Um, but but at some point, I think we have to recognize that this is. This is a a painful kind of normalization of something like a fear that every every like young Latin Latino Latina Latinx person has um, about about the the state of their like about their existence in a country that kind of refuses to acknowledge that they are allowed there. Mm. Um, and also, it, it ignores a lot of racism. Uh, roughly half of of people in ICE detention centers um, are also black. Mm-hmm. I, I keep saying this, but Latinidad is not a race. It's mm-hmm. an, it's a nationality, an ethnicity. These things are are so embedded in in even like kids that that we end up making jokes about them that kind of belie the pain that comes from these things mm-hmm. um and yeah it's and i i think jokes are are often harmless but but do uncover like deep emotional truths mm-hmm. and traumas within and trauma mm-hmm. yeah generational traumas mm-hmm. personal traumas all of them yeah that was a lot <laughs> um yeah we keep doing <laughs> There's so much, and I think as the year goes on, there's going to be even more. Um, yeah, because I think we're kind of in a time when we are, it's like even in our own personal lives, like, I don't know, you may look at people like us and think like, oh, they're so woke or they're so, you know, whatever. But you you learn more and more, and you realize how structured your thinking is to, you know, the systematic racism that exists already. Um, so, for instance, I, I took an ethics class over the summer, and I was um, doing a project on the discriminatory design in the tax code. And a suggestion that I received for the project was to um, think about ways of improving the tax code. And I realized that I struggled with that so much because of what we've been raised to pursue. So, for instance, um, something that I mentioned was how the tax code benefits the behavior of mostly white, um, upper-class individuals, right? So if you own a house, there's like five different benefits you can get from the tax system. You can get the homeowner's tax credit. You can get a deduction on your mortgage interest. You can get um, a renewable energy credit. Like you can get all these benefits when there's 
there's literally nothing at the federal level for people who rent homes. And then we could talk about the history of redlining and how black people were overwhelmingly excluded from home ownership, right? So you think about it and you're like, okay, should we have incentives for people to own homes? Is that a bad thing? And, you know, it's like you're, you're thinking about how to even reform that. Do you just add, you know, credits or benefits to people who rent homes? But the reality is like, you know, you're, you're trained to think that owning a home is like the goal and that's a good thing and there should be rewards for it. When the reality is that those were things that people of positions of privilege were really entitled to. And how do you sort of undo your thinking to realize like, okay, these people, they, they didn't need these benefits in the first place. They're given it. And now I have been trained to pursue them. How do I sort of pull back and say like, okay, how do I dismantle this system to where it needs to really be? Yeah, yeah I, I as part of another class I'm taking, which is a class on gentrification mm-hmm. and social stratification, um, we read The Color of Law, which uh, is a sort of controversial book, even among, like, the, the I guess, the leftists who appreciate it. Um, and it, it, it's, it's sort of, like, central idea, uh, central claim is that the housing discrimination and the reason why black people and and Hispanic folks don't own the same amount of housing is not because they didn't want it or or even um, private private sort of um, discrimination. It was a series of of laws mm-hmm. coming down from the federal, even at the local level, that systematically kept these people from owning homes. And so when we start to think about how we want to restructure society and these sort of codes and these laws, it's not simply enough to get rid of them. That does not afford people the justice that they need because now you're just living without these laws under this, within the same world and the same system mm-hmm. that put you there in the first place. You need to elevate people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an important part. But also I wanted to say that the that we're not, uh, I guess, a comment on the wokeness. It's, the wokeness <laughs> doesn't come from the facts that you're uh, you're able to recall about the classes that you took and the discussions that you took in your Saturday night like mm-hmm. reading group. It, it comes from a like a fundamental rethinking and a, a critical thought, critical thought applied to other aspects of your life. So even even if I continue down the path that I started four years ago and become like an aerospace engineer, I'm now going to apply these sort of critical thinking methods, these criti- this critical thought um, into the projects I, I start. So when I'm designing whatever, I'm going to ask myself, like, why am I designing this? Who is this helping? Because at the end of the day, none of this makes any sense without humans. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's nothing to design, there's nothing to build, there's nothing to construct without the people that... that the people and then, and then consequently the world that we inhabit. Um, and so wokeness isn't about facts. It's not about statistics. It's about the way that you think about the world. And, I mean, even if you are racist right now, start thinking about things critically. It'll really help. And then deconstruct all these things. And if the conclusion is racism at the end, then come talk to me, I guess. <laughs> and we, we, can, we can discuss it, but we'll discuss it critically. We will. <laughs> 
So that's good. You know, to wrap up, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to say to people? No. Uh, <laughs> please stay safe. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Social distance. Yeah. Wear a mask. Um, and eat fruit. Yeah. Fiber, everything. You need it. Um, take care of yourself. I think, you know, times like this aren't going to last. Um, this pandemic will eventually end. <laughs> um, and at the end of it, you know, you'll still have your life, you'll still have your, you know, your dreams, your aspirations and everything. And, you know, those are the things that you can't sort of let go, even if it's a pandemic. And it's like, it's hard. And, you know, it may be hard to just get out of bed in the morning. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's worth living and it's worth you know, continuing the things that you dreamed of and the things that you want, whether, you know, you're someone who wants to get into MIT, keep working at it. Um, it's not the best thing in the world, but it's a great place. And I think, you know, it, these are things worth living for. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of MIT Is. Um, signing off. <laughs> I still don't know how to end this. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>